and that's just what I'll do. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm an elder here. Uh, my name is Charlie Lopez. Um, we're going to be continuing on in our study in the book of Acts, um, looking at an interesting passage, you know, in, in preparation for sermons, uh, when you're reading through the text, a lot of things jump out, you know, a lot of things that you can relate to, which this passage of text in particular brought to the forefront of my mind um, a term that's usually used to describe the church by outsiders. Um, if your experience is anything like mine, then that term that comes to mind is hypocrites. <laughs> that's usually the term that you hear um, to describe the church by those who are outside of the church. Um, and sadly, it's more often true than not. It's not a false assumption to make because there's no denying that the church consists of sinners, but sinners who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and are prog- they're being conformed into the image of Christ throughout their faith walk. So it's not that far off of a term. Um, and this morning in our text in Acts, we're going to actually look at two unique characters in the early church. A man by the name of Ananias and his wife Sapphira. Um, two people who are probably the first hypocrites in Christ's church, or at least the first recorded hypocrites, uh, to my knowledge. What a legacy to leave behind, right? <laughs> so we're going to be looking at a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. Um, if you've been with us for some time, you know that we do a lot of sitting and standing, sitting and standing. So I'm going to go ahead and ask if you would stand for the reading of God's word. It is God's word after all. So we're going to be in Acts chapter five, verses one through 11 this morning. But I'm going to go ahead and pick up in 432 and read through 511. Acts 432. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and they found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. 
And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the inerrant word of God. You may be seated. So this is where we're going to be spending the morning examining and looking at this passage of text and these two characters, a man by the name of Ananias and his wife Sapphira. But before I dive in and we we pick it apart, just wanted to go back through. Uh, We've been in the book of Acts for, uh, I think, going on a few months now. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in it, though. Um, So I just wanted to run back through and give a brief, brief context of what we've seen and then build it up to our passage this morning. So um, if you've been with us, we've seen a lot of amazing things take place in the book of Acts from the very beginning, from Christ's ascension uh, to the Spirit's outpouring in the very early chapters uh, in Acts at Pentecost. Um, If you've been with us, then you saw that this miraculous act of the, the pouring, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit onto the apostles which in turn, they received the miraculous gift of speaking in other languages, um, which was a pretty amazing thing. Uh, And if you were with us, you saw that this miracle, it actually opened the door to preaching the gospel, uh, leads into one of Peter's uh, long sermons. And so we, we see the Holy Spirit being poured out at Pentecost in the early chapters of Acts. We see the gospel being proclaimed by the Apostle Peter. And then we're told very early on that the church is already beginning to grow. That's what we see in the text. Uh, We're told after Peter's gospel sermon, after the miracle of speaking in tongues, 3,000 souls were added to the church. So from the very early uh, start of the book of Acts, we see the church is growing. Christ's bride is growing. We see the Holy Spirit empowering the apostles and they're preaching with boldness. They're preaching the gospel. And then this miraculous event, of course, It's followed by another miracle in Acts chapter 3. We know the healing of the the lame beggar. And as we observed, if you were with us, Pastor John noted and pointed out that there was kind of this pattern taking place, wasn't there? In the early church, you see the miracle happening and then the gospel being preached. And that's the same pattern that we see in uh, Acts chapter 3. And we came to the conclusion that it's not that the miracles are the point. The miracles were not an end in and of themselves. The gift of speaking in tongues, although it was great and miraculous, that was not the point. But rather, they were signs pointing to something greater. And we compared it to Jesus in his day. The the miracles that he performed, they were not the point, but rather they were a sign pointing to the fact that he was Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And the same thing here. Here's the, the miracle, the healing of the lame beggar. And it really serves as a catapult into preaching the gospel. And so we see this miraculous act of this lame beggar who hasn't walked for 40 years of his life. And and so we see that pattern. The miracles are not the point, but they catapult into preaching the gospel. The miracles were validating that gospel message. Christ is establishing his church through the preaching of the gospel. These spirit filled apostles were preaching the gospel of Christ. And these miracles were validating that message. Repent and trust in Christ. And that's what Peter does again after this miracle of healing. He points his audience to the reality of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then this, of course, this this preaching of the gospel, it causes a ruckus with the religious leaders, remember. Um, It causes quite a ruckus. Because here, essentially, you have these uneducated nobodies. I think Pastor John called them hillbillies. 
And they're making the religious elite of that day look like chumps. They're schooling them in their own game. You can't have that. And so enter in an arrest. And now you have Peter and John standing before the religious elite, the rulers, and they're standing before them on some trumped up charges. And they're being told that they must silence themselves. Be quiet. Sit down. Stop telling people about this man named Christ and the resurrection of the dead. So they're being threatened. And after some some empty threats, they're released. And then that brought us to the text in Acts that we saw this unique scene of corporate prayer. And if you were with us, Thomas Amos, he uh, preached an awesome sermon on this passage of text and corporate prayer in the early church. And we looked at uh, this passage and we noted that these prayers, they didn't consist of asking that their circumstances be changed. Remember, that was one of the things that Thomas pointed out. They were not praying, Lord, make the burden light, take away the pain. But rather, one of the unique things that we saw in this prayer was a total dependency on God, asking for boldness to preach the gospel. And this beautiful scene of corporate prayer in the early church, it also brought us to the passage that Nelson preached on. We saw this early church and this communal living and and total unity. That was one of the main points of the passage was there was unity within this church. And and Luke makes it clear in 432. He writes where they all those who believed were of one heart and one soul. There was total unity within this early church. Within this new entity or organism called the church, we see the gospel being preached in 433. The apostles with great power were giving testimony to the resurrection. So we see unity. We see the gospel being preached within the church. It's a very beautiful scene. We see total acts of selflessness. Those who had property were selling it. And if there was a need, it was met. Nobody within this community was going without. If there was need, it was met. It's a very beautiful scene of of Christ's bride beginning to form unity, the gospel being preached, acts of selflessness. People were, um, as Pastor John has mentioned before, they were holding their possessions with open hands. Totally selfless acts were taking place. And it's in this setting of the early church and the selflessness that Luke, remember, Luke is the author of the book of Acts. Luke points out a man named Joseph from Cyprus. And Luke lets us know that this is a man whom the apostles called Barnabas, which meant son of encouragement. And we're told by Luke that this man, he sold his real estate in Cyprus and he gave his earnings to the apostles. He he laid them at their feet. It was truly a selfless act. And it's in this setting that we see our characters introduced, which I think I should mention. I don't believe that Luke did by accident. The introduction of Barnabas in chapter four, it was of no coincidence. If you've been with us, we we went through the book of Luke. We were there for almost three years. And we know that Luke is writing for a man named Theophilus. And Luke is kind of acting as this the very first, if you want to think about it this way. He's the very first investigative journalist. He's compiling all of the facts. He's delivering this this news to this man, Theophilus. So if you've been with us and we studied the book of Luke, the Gospel of uh, Luke, then you know that the author, he doesn't just use information as filler. That's not what he was doing with the early church. He was creating what we're going to look at this morning, a, a contrast. And you can see it clearly in the text. And in 5.1, it begins with a word that I think clearly shows that contrast. But 
B-U-T. So we see Joseph, a man called Barnabas by the apostles, and his selfless giving, he's giving an honorable title by the apostles. It's truly amazing. But there was a man named Ananias. So we see Luke creating this, this contrast between the two. We see this scene of unity in the early church with the selflessness and being of one heart and one mind. And it was set in place to contrast what we're going to look at this morning, a disunity. And we see this disunity begin with the introduction of our characters this morning. Ananias and his wife Sapphira. So keep that in mind, unity and disunity. So you could imagine the scene, right, in the, the early church. Barnabas, he's, everybody's giving. And then here comes Joseph, a, a man from Cyprus. Uh, he comes and he lays his gifts at the apostles' feet. What a gracious act. Imagine, imagine the church scene. The, the song we sang, uh, or um, Give Me Jesus, and, and this really nice hymnals playing. And here comes Joseph, and he lays his offering down, and everybody's touched, and everybody can see it. Oh, what, an, what a truly selfless and honorable act. And then the apostles announce, what a gracious act, Joseph. We're going to call you Barnabas. What an encouragement you are to your brothers. Such an encouragement. That would be an honor to receive such a title from the apostles. And yet it's in this setting in the background where you have our two characters. I don't know if plotting would be the right word, but imagine those two characters speaking to themselves. You know, we have some real estate, too. I have a piece of property. We could sell it, you know, give only half. I wouldn't mind having a nice title like Barnabas. It has a nice ring to it. I would like for people to to look at me with that that glisten, that twinkle in their eye and say, there, there goes Ananias. What an amazing man. So it's in that setting that our two characters are introduced. And in other words, what we really see with our characters this morning is half of the giving for all of the glory. That's what they're desiring. Barnabas, what we've seen in the text, uh, there's no indication that he was acting out of selfishness. In fact, it was selflessness. He was honest. He was not seeking for the fame and the applause. He was not after the accolades. He was not seeking a title. But rather, he possessed genuine care for his brothers and sisters. Genuine care for his fellow saints. Whereas Ananias and Sapphira, and note, Luke makes it clear that Sapphira is very much involved in this. If you read the text, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and he emphasizes, and with his wife's full knowledge. Sapphira is not a victim here. She's not a passive passenger along on her husband's ride. She is, you might even call her an enabler. So you have this couple, they're plotting. Ananias is plotting his spiritual pretense. This couple contrasted to Barnabas. They wanted the acclaim. They wanted the fame. They knew what they were seeking for. They knew what they were doing. And as a result of their ill motivations for gain, Luke tells us they were clearly not honest about the sum of the money received for their property. They sold their land and kept back some of the monies while pretending to give it all. Herein lies our hypocrisy. Ananias was pretending to be something that he was in fact not. Ananias had spiritual pretense. He was appearing to be what he was actually not. Whether that be super spiritual, pious, devout, he was zealous, he was appearing to be something that he was in fact not. It's very tragic. And Luke is recording this in the early church. I'm not up here just to ramble or to give a commentary. Why is this dangerous? Why would Luke include this account? What would Luke's purpose be? As we've, we've already established, he's not some bumbling fool who's just writing to fill pages for Theophilus. He knows exactly what he's doing. 
inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to write the text, what is he doing? Well, I think that Luke is making it clear that this is dangerous. What Ananias and Sapphira are plotting and partaking in is dangerous. Why do I, what brings me to that conclusion? Well, there's no better example than our Lord Jesus Christ. In his earthly ministry, he clearly refuted this kind of thinking during his ministry, did he not? The Pharisees, they were his greatest earthly opponents. And what, yet what did Christ do? I always think of this when, when you hear people kind of falsely portray Christ and they say, well, Christ was just loving. And you picture a blonde haired hippie handing out daisies to everybody. But I always think of Christ in this sense. What did Christ constantly tell the Pharisees? What did he call them? Hypocrites. <laughs> and he wasn't just insulting them for the sake of insulting them, but rather he was showing them the reality of their hearts. One of his seven woes in Matthew 23, 27 and 28, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and you Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So this, this idea of hypocrisy within the church is clearly a dangerous thought. Luke is making that clear. Jesus combated this, this sort of hypocrisy. These religious rulers that, that Jesus faced, they, were, they thought themselves to be great. We are just it. We're the bee's knees. Look at us. And here comes Christ and he tells them, no, you're not. In fact, you're dead, full of defilement. You think of a dead body, that was defiling to a Jew. And Jesus says, you're full of dead man's bones. You are full of defilement. And in fact, you defile those around you. Hypocrisy is no small thing. We might trivialize it, but obviously Christ spent much of his time combating it. It to the forefront of his hearers' minds. But it is no small thing. Hypocrisy can fool one into thinking that they possess something when in fact they actually don't. Enter in Ananias and his spiritual pretense. Hypocrisy can blind us. And in fact, I would make the argument this morning that hypocrisy and deceit, it can be a poison that infects those around us. It is not something that just remains within us, but in fact, it can infect those around. And I believe that that's Luke's point of contrasting the two. You have unity and then you have Ananias and his wife Sapphira in their disunity. Hypocrisy can be a poison poison that infects those around us. And this is, I believe this is Luke's point, as I mentioned. And why do I, why do, why do I come to that conclusion? Well, you, uh, Luke, he actually uses a unique word when describing Ananias' action. And he uses the word kept back, enos pisado. It's used another time in the Greek Old Testament to describe a man by the name of Achan. You know the, the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. And this, this word that Luke is using, it would ring a bell in his audience's mind at the time. It's, it's, a, it's a word that ties to financial fraud. And he uses this word, and this word is used in Joshua chapter 7 to describe the sin of a man named Achan. And in Joshua chapter 7, you don't have to go there, but um, we're told... Uh, that Israel, remember, they're, they're going to conquer Jericho. They do as the Lord tells them to do. They march around. The walls fall down. They conquer Jericho. What a great victory. 
But what are they told after their victory? They are told that the treasures of that city are to be devoted to the Lord and enter into his treasury. They belong to God. When you plunder the city after your victory, the treasure of that city is mine, declared the Lord. We know from the story in Joshua chapter 7 that a man named Achan actually embezzled. He committed financial fraud. There's that word. He kept back for himself, similar to Ananias. He committed financial fraud toward his maker, and he stole and kept back some of the treasure for himself. And in doing so, he, told, he showed total disregard for the word of God. It was a command. That treasure of that city is mine, declared the Lord. A complete act of defiance, a total disregard for the holiness of God. And why do I say that Luke is introducing the, these characters? There was unity and disunity. Well, we see this back in the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. Because what, what happened right after the victory conquering Jericho? They were to go and fight against I. Remember, and what happened? Lost. They lost that fight. Israel suffered defeat. And we know that eventually Achan's sin was discovered. It was uncovered. It was brought out into the light. And ultimately, we know that he suffered judgment and was stoned to death. And Luke, I believe, wants us to see the similarity between Joshua chapter 7 and what's taking place here in the early church. Because the similarity being Achan's sin was a disunity to the unity of God's people, Israel. I argue is an early type of the church. And so we see this disunity because of the sin of one man within that community. Because of Achan, he suffered the loss at I. There was disunity amongst God's people. And that's why Luke went from showing us the selfless giving and the unity of the early church in 432 to the selfish deception and hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. This unity was being broken. And why is unity such a big deal? I would note if you've been around me and you hear me babble on about the word of God, we've been seeing a lot about unity. If you've been with us in the, the book of Romans in our study, Paul, I would encourage you to read from chapter 12 on. Unity is a big deal to the Apostle Paul. Unity within the church is not just a concept here in the early church, but rather it is of the greatest importance for Christ's body. And so we see this unity being broken. Deception and hypocrisy, they are dangerous because they can break the unity of God's people. Perhaps in Ephesians 2, uh, 4.25, this is why the Apostle Paul says when speaking of the church, Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Perhaps Luke includes this account of Ananias and his wife Sapphira in the early church because clearly this is not to be her mark. Remember, this is new. The church is beginning. To profess and call on the name of Christ, they are saved, they are members one of another. This is not to be her identifying mark. This is not to be what people should say when they see the church. Hypocrisy and deceit are not her marks, but rather the church should be a scene of unity like we saw back in 432. Now, that's not to say that hypocrisy and deceit won't be present at times. As I mentioned, that's usually the identifying uh, term from outsiders. Ah, they're full of hypocrites. But that's not to say that hypocrisy won't be present at times. One thing that we can see is that those should not be her marks. It should not be the motivation. It should not go unbridled. Also, a quick side note from looking at the early church here. I think that this text is actually proof that there's no such thing as a perfect church. 
Have you ever heard people say we found the perfect church? I think of um, Charles Spurgeon. If you guys know Charles Spurgeon, uh, he was a pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle in, in London. Very witty preacher. He was quick. <laughs> Sometimes you kind of reminded me of Martin Luther. He would say things that could be very offensive and he would justify them. But uh, a couple came up to him from his church and they told him that they were leaving his church to find uh, a perfect church. And you know what Spurgeon told them? He said, if you find it, don't join it. You'll ruin it. (laughs) That's just the reality. There is no such thing as a perfect church. Now, that is not an excuse for the church to run unbridled, as I mentioned. But there is no such thing as the perfect church. And I like what John Stott, he's an English Anglican priest, and he writes on this passage. He says, Luke making mention about the church and its problems, he says, it throws light on the interior life of the first spirit-filled community. It was not all romance and righteousness. As I mentioned, now this idea, it should not warrant unbridled sin, but rather, here's a little bit of application. What can we take away from this? I would say that it should be a call for the saints of God to pray for their churches, to pray for faithfulness, to pray for grace for one another, to pray for, a, for protection from the evil one. Pray for your leaders. I need it. I'm sure Nelson, Pastor John, Samuel, we would be, they would be very welcoming of your prayers. We need it. Pray for your leadership. And also, important, most importantly, pray for unity under Christ. Pray that we be united together and that we not be false, that we lay aside all hypocrisy and deceitfulness and that we be real with one another. Enough of the spiritual pretense, but that we be real with one another. And when we see somebody hurting, share the gospel. Come alongside. Be real. Pray for unity. Also, so we, we saw this contrast. So there's... Joseph, a man named Barnabas by the apostles, and we have Ananias and his wife Sapphira. We looked at their hypocrisy and the comparison to Achan in Joshua chapter 7. And we see why uh, hypocrisy and deceit can be dangerous. It's very dangerous. It can poison and infect those around us. Well, let's look at, uh, I wanted to look also at this morning in verses 3 and 4 at Peter's reply. Let's look at his reply. So I'll, I'll just start in 5.1 again. In Acts chapter 5, verse 1, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. So I wanted to look at Peter's response and namely just really point out three things, three important concerns that we see in Peter's response. And the first important concern we see is that I just wanted to make the point Ananias' sin was not exactly the same as Achan's. I want to make that clear. Achan stole treasure that was devoted to God. There was a clear command in Scripture. That is mine. Peter makes it clear in his response that Ananias was not forced to give. It wasn't a command. You won't find that in the text. The scene going back to chapter 4 in the early church, it was cheerful giving. It was voluntary. It wasn't a communistic society. They were not forced to give their property. In this early church scene, it was cheerful giving. It was voluntary. 
And we see Peter making this point in his response to to Ananias. You didn't have to give. You didn't have to do anything. But also in his response, we don't see Peter inventing the right of private ownership either. That's seen in other parts of the Bible, right? I mean, just the, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. Stealing clearly implies private ownership of things. So Peter, he was not saying it was a communistic society. You had to give your goods. No. Nor is he inventing the right of private ownership. That's been from the beginning. Peter was making it clear that Ananias did not have to sell his property. He didn't have to. It's not a sin to own things, but rather the sin was in his deception. He could have given any amount that he wanted to. Kind of makes you think of people who make the argument for 10%, right? You give what you want. We're told to be cheerful givers. So Peter's making it clear. You didn't have to give anything if you didn't want to. But rather you're in trouble, Ananias, because of your deceitfulness. You lied. And Peter, in his response, makes it clear that his lying, it wasn't a personal attack against Peter. Peter didn't say, I'm hurt. You've really offended me. But rather, Peter shows that it was against God. This deceitfulness, this lying, this hypocrisy was ultimately an attack against God. And this is the common ground that is shared by Achan and Ananias, the deception. Again, John Stott, that English Anglican priest, I like what he says. He sums it up nicely. He says, the apostles complaint was not that they lacked honesty, bringing only a part of the sale price, but that they lacked integrity, bringing only a part while pretending to bring the whole. They were not so much misers as thieves and above all liars. He says they wanted the credit and the prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. And he also says, and so in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told a brazen lie. Their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. So we see Peter and his response ultimately tell them, you didn't have to give that which was yours was yours. Rather, the problem lies in your deception and your lying to God. You've got to think of the goal on these two, right? Here's the creator of everything in existence, the knower and the searcher of every single person's hearts, the God whose eyes are as x-rays. And here you have these two coming in and saying, no, 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 no. You don't see what you see. You see what we want you to see. The goal. And it's easy to point and look down on Ananias and Sapphira, but I think that there should be some looking inward at our own hearts as well. I'm guilty as well. So the second point that we see in Peter's response is we see the reality of spiritual warfare, don't we? Judas, what does he say? Who's filled your heart? Satan. So we see in Peter's response the reality of spiritual warfare existing for the Christian, even in the early church. They were not void. They were not without. So we see in Peter's response the reality of spiritual warfare existing very early on in the church. And we should note that if there's any opening, Satan looks to exploit it, especially in the church. Satan would want nothing more than to hinder the church and to bring that disunity where there should be unity, where unity under the banner of Christ and his love should be reigning. Satan would want nothing more for disunity to take place. Nothing hinders his gospel going forward more than disunity amongst his people. So this is one of the greatest dangers that we see in the early church. And so Peter, he makes it clear that there is spiritual warfare. And with Ananias and Sapphira, that opening that Satan exploited was their hunger for status and their desire for fame. I don't care about my brother and sister. In fact, I want to be greater than my brother and sister. 
And Satan used this opportunity and exploited it. Make no mistake, Scripture's clear. Satan is, he's a formidable opponent. He's stronger than we. But it should also be noted this morning that he's not an equal to God. We don't believe in some dualistic idea where God and Satan are arm wrestling and who's going to win in the end? We hope it's God. No. Pastor John has quoted Luther and I'll quote him as well. Luther says that Satan is God's Satan. He made him. He is not his equal. But nevertheless, Scripture also makes clear this is kind of that strange tension we Christians live in. He's not equal to God, but he is a threat. And perhaps this scene in the early church is the reason why Peter went on to write in 1 Peter. He says, be sober, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. I believe that's the key. So we should also, from looking at Peter's response to Ananias, make no mistake, Christians are in the crosshairs of Satan or at least one of his minions. So what should we do? I wouldn't want to just bring that out and say, hey, guys, there's spiritual warfare out there and leave you there. Well, praise God for Scripture, because James in James chapter four, verse seven, he says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, I could quote Scripture, but what does that look like? What does it look like to submit to God, to resist the devil and he will flee? What does that look like? Well, I stated it earlier. Praise God for for Christ, our greatest example, right? Jesus, while on earth, he was a perfect example of a life submitted to God. And we see this in the wilderness temptation when Satan came. Remember, after Jesus' baptism, he's driven out to the wilderness. He's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And, and there he is. He's just experiencing much. And Satan comes to tempt him. And I believe that it's here that we see the greatest example of submitting to God, resisting the devil, and he will flee. And so what did Jesus do when Satan began throwing his his jabs at Christ? What did he respond with? He didn't start rebuking Satan and and throwing things and stomping his feet and screaming and yelling. But rather, he responded with Scripture. Deuteronomy, to be more specific, we see Christ responding to these temptations with Scripture. Why? Because it's in the Scriptures that the will of God is made known. It's revealed in the Word of God. His will is made known. And Jesus, he knew his father's will. You think of that wilderness scene. He's clearly meditating on Deuteronomy. Christ is resting on his father's word. Jesus knew his father's will and he submitted to it. At one of the temptations, he said, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. An example of submitting yourselves, therefore, to God, resisting the devil, and he will flee. And ultimately, what happened in the wilderness temptation? Satan left. So Christ, he knew God's word, he meditated on God's word, was filled with God's word. And it's from looking at him that we see what a life in submission to God looks like. So you go back to James 4, 7, submit yourselves. What does that look like? Look at Christ. I would encourage you to take your fill on the word of God. Fill up. Because resisting in your own strength is to no avail. And so we see Jesus knew God's word, meditated on God's word, and he submitted to God. And so a third point that Peter makes and this is the, in his response, the third point is that all sin is ultimately against God. In his response to Ananias, he makes it clear, you didn't sin against me. You didn't sin against anybody else. You sinned against God. All sin is ultimately an offense to a holy God. Peter makes this clear by first pointing out, did you notice the deity of the Holy Spirit there? We see the third person of the triune Godhead being made known. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? 
while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. We see the deity of the Holy Spirit being implied here. Ananias was not sinning against Peter, but it was against the Holy Spirit. And if you look back in verse 31 after their prayer, we see he's sinning against the one who fills the church. Remember, they pray and then they're all filled with the Spirit of God. He is the one who fills the church. So we see all sin ultimately is against God. It's not in my notes, but I think of David in Psalm 51 in his prayer of repentance. We think of his great sin, his sin of adultery and having a man murdered by placing him on the front in the battlefield. And what is his prayer of repentance? He doesn't say, I've sinned against Bathsheba. I've sinned against her husband. He says, it's against you and you alone that I have sinned, Lord. All sin is ultimately against God. And we see in this text, it's really unique. As a result of their sin, remember, because they were both in agreement, God's judgment fell on this couple. This moment in the early church, it's unique. But I believe it was placed here for us to see the point. I'm not here to argue whether or not Ananias and Sapphira were saved or weren't saved. I'm not implying that. But I think that Luke includes this, this instance to show that God is not indifferent, not even to his people's sin. Why? We see in... Um, Verse 11, did you know that there's the first time the word church is used in the book of Acts? The word ekklesia, it's just fancy Greek for church. It's the first time Luke uses that word, ekklesia, church. Perhaps Luke is pointing out this word that the church, uh, by using this word, that the church is always under Satan's attack. And it doesn't always come from outside. Isn't that one of our problems? Oh, look at the world outside. But what about within? The world outside is a threat. Clearly, we see these two people within the community of the church. And also, I think what we see from this immediate judgment from Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, uh, it's as Daryl Bach, he's a commentator, he, he writes, This judgment indicates, however, how serious sin is to God and how gracious God is in often deferring such judgment. Most sin is not treated so harshly. But at this early stage, such a divine act serves to remind the community of its call to holiness and its loyalty and allegiance to God. So I'll just give a quick summary and then uh, my conclusion. So I just kind of summed it up in three points again. What we saw is that, first of all, there's no such thing as a perfect church. No matter what you might think, this should drive us to be prayerful for one another. There's no such thing as a perfect church. So let that drive you to prayer. Pray for your leaders. Pray for one another. Pray for fellow churches, fellow believing churches around you. And God's people are not perfect, but that's not an excuse or a license for sin. But rather, we should be marked by repentance and resting in the grace of God in Christ. Also, I think from what we've looked at in this text, there's a call to examine ourselves. I, what are our motives? Are they pure or selfish? I, I can tell you every time I preach a sermon, I get I take the punches first. This, I was really wrestling inside, examining myself. What are my motives? So self-examination, what are our motives? Are they pure or selfish? Barnabas, out of an act of love for his brethren, was an encourager. Ananias, on the other hand, was selfish and in acting so he was a deceiver and a hypocrite. And also remember, Satan is always looking for an opening to exploit, so be watchful. And then thirdly, I believe the choices that we make do matter to God. No matter how much we try to minimize it or even grade it, our sin, it matters to God. He's not indifferent to it. 
We might look at Ananias and Sapphira and say, huh, they told a little lie. It's not that big of a deal. We've failed to grasp the holiness of God to comprehend that. All sin is ultimately an offense to a holy God. And so I would encourage to take and to learn from this passage. If sin is recognized in your heart, repent. Confess it and rest in Christ. Don't think that God is indifferent to the sins of his people. Don't be complacent with sin. A respect for God and his righteousness as well as recognition that sin is destructive. Hypocrisy is a poison. Don't take my words. I'll get ready to close out in a little bit. With 2 Timothy 2.19, Paul writes to young Timothy, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And so in conclusion, I just wanted to point out, perhaps maybe you've heard this message this morning and you're thinking to yourself, come on, Charlie, it's a little bit exaggerated, right? It's not as bad as you made it seem. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm not as bad as them. Maybe you even think you're here today and you're in this world without Christ. You think you're okay. I would encourage you, friend, this morning to examine your heart with greater care than what you have been doing. If you can look at this text and say, that's them, not me, there is a problem with your examination. You failed to look with great care. I would I would ask the question, have you lied even once? Then know in comparison to a holy God, this is deserving of his righteous and holy judgment. It is a breaking and a transgression of his law. Thou shalt not lie. And you are a liar. There's no such thing as a white lie with a holy God. And that lie is really an extension of the reality of the fact that you have a fallen nature. You are totally depraved. Sin has corrupted the entirety of your being. This is a problem. This is all of mankind. This is the human condition. This is not me from a pulpit pointing out certain at certain people. This is the human condition. In Adam, all died. Pastor John last week in his sermon mentioned the federal representative of Adam. There's, we're represented either by Christ or by Adam. Well, naturally, we're represented by Adam who represented mankind. And in his falling, we somehow mysteriously fell as well. So I would encourage you to look at this reality. We're not sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because we are sinners. And this is a great problem because the God who created you is the God in whom you are accountable to. And that God is good. And you might be looking and saying, Charlie, well, that's a good thing. Well, not for bad people. God is good. We are not. I'm not trying to scare anybody, but this is the reality of a situation that we are in. It's a great problem that God is good because we're not. And this good God, he's far too righteous to be bought. He's far too righteous to be bribed. His standard is far too high for you to achieve it on your own. You can climb that. I think it was George Whitfield who said that trying to earn your salvation is like trying to climb a ladder to the moon made out of sand. You cannot earn a thing from this God. He can't be bought. Salvation can't be earned. So what do you do? If you are here without Christ, I would urge you to examine that reality. Take it in. Chew on it. Ponder on it. Don't just say, ah, he's blabbering on. What do you do? But you should also know this morning that it's not my desire to just point out the fact of our iniquity and to leave you there. To accuse you. That's what Satan does. He's the accuser. He accuses and leaves and then keeps accusing. I would also bring in the good news to that bad news. That same God in whom you are accountable to, 
He has provided a way of escape. We've been singing it all morning. That God who is righteous and holy and good sent His Son to be your substitute. The life that you should have lived in perfect obedience to God's law, He did it for you. The death that you should have died under God's righteous judgment, He did it for you. And if you've been with us in Acts, you see the call, repent and call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. It sounds too good to be true, but to rest in Christ by faith alone is freedom and salvation, no matter who you are. So I would urge you this morning, you hear the call here every Sunday, come up and talk to me. Come up and talk to Pastor John. Samuel's in the booth. Nelson's back there. We'd love to talk to you. If God's working in your heart, come and talk to us. There'll be no spiritual pretense, I guarantee you. This is life and death. And also, I just wanted to add, too, to the believer, the gospel that I just proclaimed, I would urge you to contemplate on it as well. If you're a Christian and you've been resting in Christ, be reminded of that sweet grace that you have in Christ. That's not just the entryway. That's your life. That's not the doorway that you came in and left it behind. That's your life as well. Be reminded of the grace that God has given you in Christ and rest in Him by faith alone. Be reminded of... Jesus and his perfect work and the fact that you stand justified before a holy God, not by your merits, but by his. That's the greatest rest you could ever have. I'm no longer performing. So if you don't know Christ, consider that truth that I just shared. And if you know Christ, consider that truth that I just shared.